guns and white nationalism, how deep in America's very foundation. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. The guy who really founded that connection between Israel and the evangelicals was Bibi Netanyahu. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and uh, that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dig- dignity of man. This item in the news sets the context for today's discussion about the odd centrality of guns and racism in our country. Mark McCloskey of St. Louis, who gained national attention after he and his wife waved guns at racial injustice protesters who marched near their mansion last summer, says he will run for U.S. Senate in 2022. McCluskey made the announcement on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News. It goes on and on. And just as when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, I honestly thought that racism was limited to an easily identifiable, somewhat bizarre, small group of strictly Southern white knuckle-draggers. Fast forward to today, many of us have believed that gun nuts are also just that, a few rather bizarre deviations from civil society. (laughs) I thought that the NRA fanatics were truly a fringe among the vast majority of gun owners. Of course, there are some who collect antique guns, but those collectors may be the ones on the fringe, and the ones who are interested in sporting may be the minority of NRA as well. Our guest today looks at the unique history of guns in America and finds that, quote, gun ownership has, since early in the nation's founding, been central to enforcing a white nationalist vision of the United States, end of quote. Mass shootings are so sickeningly common in America these days. Can we ever get the gun violence under control? I mean, after the massacre of toddlers in Newtown, Connecticut back in 2012, nothing was done. What will it take? If that awful tragedy didn't do it, is there ever any hope of new laws to really enhance gun safety? Might the problem be deeper and less addressable legislatively? Could it be that racism and nationalism are not peripheral, but are actually a central tenet of America? Our guest today, author Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, is no friend of the gun lobby and has reason to believe there's actually no legislative solution. Guns are so deeply woven into the American national identity and have been from the very start. Only a significant and genuine cultural change, perhaps, can address the issue. The roots of our country, after all, are based on guns. I know this perspective is troubling, but she has a solid case. What is behind the power of the NRA? Why is gun ownership literally worshipped by so many And what does the violent insurrection of January 6th have to do with it? Her book is titled Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment, and it reveals a lot about someone you and I have never heard of, a young mid-century white racist male named Harlan Carter. 
but he had a lot to do with the rise of gun-worshipping NRA in its present form. He fused gun rights, immigration enforcement, and white supremacy. Nice combination. He transformed the NRA from principally a sporting organization into a radical right political block. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Well, thank you for having me on your show, Bert. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz grew up in rural Oklahoma in tenant farming family. She's a historian, writer, professor emeritus at California State University, East Bay, a veteran of the 60s revolution. I can relate to that. She was involved in organizing against the U.S. war in Vietnam, U.S. imperialism, racism, South African apartheid, and for workers' rights, and was one of the founders of the radical women's liberation movement in 1968. Since 1973, she's worked with indigenous communities for sovereignty and land rights and helped build the international indigenous participation in the United Nations. She is an author and editor of 15 books, including Roots of Resistance, A History of Land Tenure in New Mexico, the American Book Award-winning An Indigenous People's History of the United States, and Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. Not a nation of immigrants, settler colonialism, white supremacy, and a history of exclusion and erasure. It will be published in August of this year. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And I doubt that anyone outside the National Rifle Association has heard of Harlan Carter. Who was he? What does the murder he committed as a young man tell us about his belief that he is performing his duty as a white man? Tell us about him, please. Well, you know, I, I, um, I'm not certain that even members of the NRA know Harlan Carter's name. Um, he was such a bland-looking person. Uh, he didn't. He did speak publicly. He was a lobbyist, but he didn't really try to make himself a um, a kind of cult figure, like um, you know some of the subsequent um, presidents of the NRA or people associated with it. So he's he really um, yeah he really fell under the uh, you know just just in the background, but so important and I think. Um, we really have to pay attention to people like this, these sort of uh, bureaucrats that um, mm. carry out um, atrocious things on the part of the, the government that, that are behind the scenes. Um, I think of, um, of uh, um, Stephen Miller, oh, that yeah. elusive creature who's still at work um, as the kind of heir to um, Harlan right. Carter. But yeah, he um, he his father was a border guard. Uh, he, he was born in El Paso, and um, <clears throat> he also became a, a border guard. Um, but when he was um, a uh, teenager, he actually shot and killed a Mexican American Tejano um, kid, and. Um, he essentially got by with it. He was put on trial. He was 17. He was put on trial, I, I guess, as an adult, because they sentenced him to um, a three-year prison term for murder. And um, and then they, um, uh, he, he, I think he served a year, and then uh, the courts um, uh, 
simply dissolve the whole case. So it's not even on his record. You know, it wasn't even on his record. So it was actually a secret until he was, you know, uh, um, running the um, NRA had taken over it. It was um, um, noticed at the time. But again, his name just sort of, uh, you know, blended in and was of um, of no particular interest to um, pursue. So he's uh, even today, you know, um, gun control advocates who are very well organized and to many and very well funded, mm-hmm. um, probably as well funded as the NRA, if not more, with the um, uh, Bloomingburg, um, you know, huge contributions <clears throat> and very, very sincere. But they never bring this man up and they never really all the talk about uh, and liberals in general is, is uh, NRA is money that they bribe people. Um, and I guess it's a it's a. It's a way of really avoiding dealing uh, with what they saw with their own eyes on January 6th and mm-hmm. what they saw state capitals around the country, armed groups uh, entering the Michigan capital, taking it over with guns. Um, that, uh, you know, not connecting these things, that the NRA has tens of thousands of grassroots chapters around the country including in California, including New Hampshire, who are, you know, liberal places, um, but particularly in the, um, in the Midwest, the Pacific Northwest and the South. um, When I was, my, my understanding was that the reason he, Harlan Carter killed that young uh, Tejano was uh, that it was suggested that he was looking at the family car. Something like yeah. that, and it was yeah. I mean, just clearly racism, just unquestionable, and and yet he was he, he was not uh, uh, ashamed of it. I it's like he he felt like he was performing his duty as a white man. Tell us about Operation Wetback, and in what ways did Harlan Carter play the circus master in charge of the pomp and ceremony of the big show? What was its usefulness to mining interests and growers, Operation Wetback? Yeah, and that was its official name, you know, under the um, Eisenhower administration. Um, They had a, you know, a problem because the growers and the mining interests um, wanted, needed, absolutely had to have... um, cheap labor and and vulnerable labor and and hired you know undocumented people when recruited them all the time and then there were these to make them particularly vulnerable these continual deportations there was the so-called repatriation during uh the depression when um not as many workers were needed and then the uh Oki Desmo people needed jobs picking fruit and uh, cotton. And so they deported a million and a half. Um, Some of them were citizens, even Mexican citizens. They just picked up every Mexican they could find and deported them. So Operation Wetback was somewhat like that, but it was actually staged um, 
they did deport uh, about a million people, but it was mainly staged uh, to make it look like they had control of the border and that uh, they had simply deported all the Mexicans. Um, and um, they did this by um, bringing in all the press, uh-huh. you know, really advertising it. Harlan Carter was the border chief at the time and in charge of, um, of the operation. So they brought in airplanes. Uh, they put people on all along the border from Tijuana to um McAllen in Texas, um, they had these different sites with, you know, local publicity as well as national and international. And um, the footage is just, you know, obviously staged. Right. Uh, used, you know, they used airplanes. They used uh, uh, ships at, uh, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico uh to the these just piling people on ships and dumping them in Veracruz. And you know, these many of them were citizens. Um uh, many of them had documents. It was that they didn't differentiate it. They they just swept up right. people. They put them in kind of concentration camps um all along the way. You know, they would uh say take a a high school um uh baseball field or something and make it into a concentration camp too. And they made a big thing of that, you know, that, that they were, but they did this for a public that was hungry to, you know, a Mexican hating public um, that was, especially those who weren't involved with agriculture or mining uh, east of the Mississippi, mostly to satisfy them that they were not allowing, you know, these these uncouth people, um, Mexicans, you know, to um, to water, you know, to pollute um, mm. their gene pool in white America, right. and it is really a gross uh, show. And he played it for all it was worth. Um, and it sounds like Trump uh, sort of continued that with his wall and talking about invasion of people from. Mexico from south of the border, the other, and right around this time were the Zoot Suit riots, I believe, where, I mean, racism against Mexican-Americans was was really uh, significant, and uh, guns were uh, useful there in uh, looking tough, you know, for white America to keep us who, you know, keep the white man in charge. There was a big mission change at the National Rifle Association in the late 70s. Harlan Carter, as I understand it, almost single-handedly transformed what had been, at least in part, a sporting organization, the NRA, into a radical right political bloc and an organization with exceptionally savvy media skills. Tell us about that transformation, please. Yeah, it was uh, he, in 1975, he had... Um, um, Retire. I think he had retired from the um, Border Patrol and he moved up to um, eastern Washington state, which was already, well, you know, Washington, Oregon were founded as, as white states. They, in their constitutions, they oh, didn't my. even allow black or Chinese people to um, to live there. So it wasn't very hard, you know, to... Um, uh, to make it into a kind of a, um, a white enclave, which it still is today in Western Idaho and Eastern Washington. 
And with other white nationalists, uh, several others, they formed the Second Amendment Foundation, which was a nonprofit with nonprofit status. And so they were organized, and then they began. Um, you know, Harlan Carter was a, a member of the NRA from the time he was 20, 20, maybe even a teenager. Uh, and he had held offices, but this was clearly a plan to take over the NRA and make it into the Second Amendment Foundation uh, because they knew they couldn't compete uh, with a you know such a um, venerable organization, and it had it would be under the radar because the NRA uh, was uh, you know rather benign. Yeah, and respected, and it, you know, had nonprofit status that was chartered by Congress. It was uh, legit. Where seven, you know, the Second Amendment Foundation was pretty clearly white nationalist. Uh. So, so by 1977, they were able to get themselves elected into all of the important offices, and then Harlan Carter became the principal lobbyist until uh, he retired in 1985. Uh, from the NRA, but by then, in that time, in those uh, eight years, mm. they turned it into a white nationalist organization, which it is today. Mm. Lovely. Yes, they certainly don't want black people running around with guns. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> what? And if, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who has written a book, Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. And we're talking about how the the real popularity the the depth of gun ownership and white nationalism and how basic it is to who we are as america and one can't really understand the dynamics of the present without knowing how we got here it's exceedingly valuable as someone advised to think with history the economic boom in the United States has a lot to do with what's called settling the West, as you just mentioned, you know, the, the whites-only states. And it goes back further to the War of Independence. How did that founding event under the leadership of George Washington create the foundation of our manufacturing base? Well, you know, there, there were the 13 colonies, and <clears throat> George Washington... Um, when he was, uh, by the time he was 22 years old, had made him, he, he didn't come from a super wealthy family, but he had made himself uh, a very wealthy, uh, you know, slave owner, plantation owner in uh, Virginia and high in office in Virginia by um, uh, real estate sales. And the real estate he was selling uh, he was a land speculator, and the land he, he was speculating in was land that um, was over, uh, you know, was, was uh, uh, over the boundary of Great Britain. Um, the French and Indian War, or the Seven-Year War between Britain and France, was fought on the continent of Europe called the Seven Years' War, and it's called the French and Indian War in the United States because they were fighting the French and the Indians uh -huh, right. <laughs> and um, Britain was. Uh, so Britain won, you know, Great Britain won the war and, and in that way, you know, had owned that territory. 
But um, the settlers, uh, you know, in George Washington, they were already moving in there and he was selling this land illegally. And after the French and Indian War, Britain made a, a proclamation line um, along the 13 colonies, the uh, western part of the 13 colonies at the foot of the Appalachian and Alleghenies that no settlers were to go over that line. This was in 1863. And uh they sent redcoats, uh, battalions, you know, of um, of soldiers to go in. Uh, and the other part of the law proclamation was all British settlers who were in uh, over that line had to return to the colonies. And they sent soldiers in to bring them if they if they didn't come. Um, so that everything in the Declaration of Independence is related to this, but because people don't know history. They don't know what they're talking about, you know, the, you know, billeting, billeting the, mm-hmm. the red coats and, um, and taxing, you know, the, the stamp tax, um, but the, the stamp you, tax was to, pay, was to pay for, uh, you know, the, to pay for these, the, the expenses the British had oh, to bring sure. these people back because it was a part of the Paris, uh, agreement between France and Britain that ended the war was that no one, this would be Indian country, they called it Indian country, and no settlers would be there at all, forever. Then came so the manufacture this, of guns, right? Did, yes, this, so this was the setting, you know, for uh, the Declaration of Independence for splitting, so they could, they had the vision of reaching the Pacific and being able to go and colonize uh, China and use its wealth. This was, you know, this was their, their vision was already, they had drew maps in the Northwest ordinance during the 10 year war of independence uh, where they reached the Pacific, um, you know, straight lines across the continent. So, the the intention was imperial imperialism from the beginning, and then making and, and then making our own guns was a big was a big part well, of it. it built a, a lot of well, the manufacturing base. The first corporation uh, of the new republic was actually during um, during the war itself. Alexander Hamilton chartered the Springfield Armory in Massachusetts. Uh-huh. Uh, to manufacture, it was the first gun manufacturer. And of course, the gun industry in Connecticut and Massachusetts is still today um, about the only industry that didn't, you know, didn't move its operations overseas for cheaper labor. (laughs) It's the the U.S. uh, exports 50% of all small arms that exist in the world. It's still going on today. And we all know, you know another uh, use of steel was the creation of railroads, which pushed its way into foreign territory. How vital was the creation of many new firearms relative to this pushing into the foreign territory? And what were some of these weapons used for? Yeah, well, they were all, you know, all used for um, uh, killing, killing Native people um and and taking their land uh and the thing is that that this intention for expansion 
was the the bait for the white settlers um, was more land, you know, more land that they could um, right. acquire. And, and land was wealth. It was the basis of wealth. And, and really, the U.S. was founded as a capitalist state based yeah. upon land sales and uh, enslaved African labor, free labor. Um, so those are the two prongs of the founding of uh, our economy today, you know, the um, racial capitalism, basically. Uh, and that's what's usually left out is the land part. People know about the enslaved labor and the right. importance of that. And books and books have been written about oh, yeah. uh, capitalism arising in the cotton kingdom. But that land that they took, uh, that rich agricultural land, had belonged to the five great agrarian civilizations of um, the so-called five civilized tribes who were forcibly removed to Indian territory. And then that land was appropriated, already developed land uh, for the cotton kingdom. And so guns were essential for that. And um so not only were indigenous people almost routinely murdered by white settlers, the drama of rifles and buffalo is less spectacular, but the guns used in that were not for self-defense. And a lot of people today, the gun people still claim self-defense, self-defense, <laughs> or they were not used for hunting for food. In what way was that story relative to rifles and buffalo part of white supremacist nationalism. Yeah, and it, uh, you know, the fur trade, of course, started um, sure. uh, initially in the 13 colonies and were very well developed, mainly uh, deer skins. That's how the dollar came to be called a buck, ah, you know, because uh. they actually traded in, bear, in, in deer skins were, were money. Uh, that were traded, and there were bucks. Um, and it was completely commercial. There was no uh, subst subsistence uh, hunting. Daniel Boone was not a you know a, a hunter in the woods. He was a mercenary uh, fur trader, and um, as was Davy Crockett, and all of them were mm -hmm. all of these. And also in the West, and in the West, uh, you know, in the Beaver. They practically wiped out uh, the beaver in North America. Mm. They did wipe wipe out completely the the carrier pigeon, uh, and you know just just wiping wiping out um, whole species. Yeah. But with the buffalo, it's not so easy with uh, forty million of these uh, gigantic animals to wipe them out. But uh, and they couldn't have done it without guns oh, and the army. The army. Um, Instead of fighting the Lakota and the Cheyenne, uh, they did that too. But when they did, they always lost every single battle. It's only when they destroyed, totally destroyed their food supply and their sustenance, the buffalo, they managed to kill all those tens of millions of buffalo in about seven years. And guns were absolutely essential in that process amazing the role of of guns in in making white supremacy and white nationalism a reality so speaking of white nationalism fast forward to january 6 2021 you say that harlan carter's modus operandi was openly openly advertising white supremacy 
January 6th was about extremely enthusiastic, genuinely worshipful embrace of guns and white supremacy. Of course, their leader, Donald Trump, was fixated on building the wall, you know, same old thing, using fear of an invasion by what Carter would call wetbacks. Trump was the front man. Was Carter, Harlan Carter the foundational saint of January 6th? If so, how and what were the manifestations of that? Well, I think he put in place, you know, as a bureaucrat, he put in place the um, all of the elements um, in the National Rifle Association to um, and his, you know, his other dealings with white nationalism. He set up a, a he was a very, uh, you know, a brilliant strategist in that sense of um, setting up a structure of white supremacy that anyone could then fall into, you know, and um, and organize. Um, I doubt that anyone in that capital um, thing or, or any of the white nationalists today have ever heard of Harlan Carter. Right. Uh, he's, um, it, it's the most, ex- he's absolutely one of the most extraordinary characters for being almost like um, invisible you know this this invisible hand that um, <laughs> did so much, you know, to to establish the structure of white supremacy. White white supremacy, you know, was born with the United States. It was born as a white republic, but the white nationalism that rose in um, you know in opposition, really, to the civil rights movement, oh, yeah. um, the Red Power movement. Um, the student movement, the anti-war, you know, Vietnam vets got, uh, many Vietnam vets got very involved in white nationalism. Mm. Um, You know, mainly the ones who didn't have PTSD. (laughs) uh, The the ones who came back healthy were the crazy ones. Absolutely. If, If you went into Vietnam and saw what they saw and didn't have some kind of PTSD, Ooh, there was something wrong with yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, really. There's some, something wrong with your emotional structure, for sure. In the... But that, yeah, so they really burgeoned during the Reagan administration. Who, mm. Unlike Trump, he was pre-Trump. It was all dog whistles. You know, he went to Bitburg Cemetery where uh-huh. the Nazis were buried. He went to... Um, uh, he went to where the the white civil uh, white and black civil rights workers had been uh, murdered by the Ku Klux Klan and buried in um, a dam at, for his inaugural. And Trump imitated this. He mm-hmm. did that. His he sent his son to do it, Donald Trump Jr. But you know it didn't make national news. Uh, people like me pay attention to these mm-hmm. things, but. Uh, locally, you know, and in the South and within the white nationalist um, networks, yeah. that that means, you know, that means a, a, a lot. And um, so Reagan set the, um, you know, absolutely set the um, tone. The town he grew up in, in Illinois, uh, was a sundown town. Uh, and he was interviewed um about racism, he said, well, I, uh, you know, we weren't racist at all because there weren't any black people at all. <laughs> well, across the railroad tracks on the other side of the town he grew up in was the segregated black community that he never saw. <laughs> so he was a That's thorough right. 
We had him in California for eight years as no, governor. No, we sorry. got to know him very well. Uh, <laughs> grade B movie star governor. Uh, <laughs> for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about guns and white nationalism and how the two are so interrelated. And our guest today is uh, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who has uh, written a book called Loaded, Disarming: A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. And in the wake of almost mind-numbing commonality of mass killings, it's been incredibly frustrating trying to create legislation to better protect public safety. All polls show the vast majority of Americans want better gun laws. Here in New Hampshire, when I was in the state Senate and put in legislation to require safe storage of loaded firearms when one can reasonably expect children to be present, present, nearly 300 members of Gun Owners New Hampshire filled the hall. And the people for sensible gun laws didn't come out. Despite the fact that about 80% of our citizens agrees that their presence intimidated legislators. Gun safety advocates are not one-issue people. We care about many issues. But gun owners are fiercely dedicated to their one issue. They come out. We finally did get a watered-down version of my bill, but the point is the near religiosity, the fervor of the gun lobby. As Sierra Pettingill, a creator of the documentary film The Rifleman, wrote, the Second Amendment is really understood by many Americans as a religious covenant linked to white nationalism and the idea that God has ordained this country for whites and therefore licenses white nationalists' violence. And I think that's what we're talking about. She argues that working with technicalities of the Second Amendment, dissecting the meaning of the word militia, as so many of us do, misses the point. Your book, Loaded, takes this on. Tell us why you say trying to address this legislatively is probably a lost cause. Tell us why. Yeah, it's really sad. Um, you know, uh, you started talking about um, a new town, um, the massacre of this uh, toddler. Um, I, at that time, is when that was a, that was the uh, shift for me of saying, "There's not going to be any. If it couldn't be then, right. it's not going to. It's not going to happen." And I had to think through, um, I was asked to write this book, and I, I thought, well, why haven't I written this before? Because I'm always talking about it. But it wasn't so easy to, you know, kind of track it down. Um, what, you know, it, it, it was from the very beginning. It's not, um, it, it's a, there's this carrier, you know, this white settler carrier of, um of the the foundations of this settler colonial um, order of the United States, uh, it they it, in part it's you know and I have to say my father's family is Scots Irish uh, they were in the Appalachian you know they uh, fortunately that my my grandfather was actually a socialist in Oklahoma in the early twentieth century but he was unusual. Because the Scots Irish were came as settlers, but they had already been settlers in Ulster in Ireland. So this goes way back. This white, um, this white nationalism that came with the Scots Irish 
where who they encountered was no longer the Irish, which they already considered been called baboons, even though they were blue-eyed blondes, but that racial order that had developed where Native people and, and Black people were uh, then, you know, racially inferior, considered racially inferior. They were almost a caste of settler colonials and, you know, in the British Empire. And so they're kind of the core. I'm always tracing the names of, you know, when I a name of white nationalists and probably 60, 70 percent of the time it's a Scots-Irish origin. Often they're very proud of it and they announce it, you know, <laughs> who they are. That strain of these border settlers, they were the ones who were in the forefront of, of going over the proclamation line of, you know, of um, and and they were um, uh, they formed themselves into militias and and uh, to go in and you know create atrocities. Um, one thing people you know because there's this absence of of Native Americans in U.S. history yeah. that these were very intensive farmers long before the Europeans came. Uh, you know the the Native people created the practically every vegetable that that is eaten in the world today uh, 10,000 years ago. So they were village people and village people, farmers are very vulnerable to attack. You know, they're, they're farming. I mean, they're, um, they're not out, you know, uh, fighting wars. And so they're, especially early on, they were very vulnerable to the, these kinds of set things that were used in to settle Ulster and replace the Irish yeah. with the Scots and Anglos, the the scalping, the cutting heads off, yes. Yes. and you know putting them on the walkways to terrorize people, uh, burning down their you know their fields and and their uh, structures, their storages, their houses, raping the women, killing the children, driving them out. So this this happened, you know, this was in the colonial period, and it simply continued without a beat. But what had happened, you know, is these settler militias had become a, an existing institution. And so the Second Amendment was simply a continuation. It was already in the Virginia Constitution, uh, the the Second Amendment, what became the Second Amendment, pretty much the same language Jefferson had written it for the Virginia Constitution. It was already in the massive. It was in seven of the 13 colonies. Um, so how did it become something that's it's almost religious, really, that we can't, you know? Well, I think it, Go ahead. I think, I think it was always cultish. I mean, I think it was cultish from the beginning that this was consider colonialism is cultish, you know, white nationalism. These are cultish, um, you know, yeah. negatively cultish. Uh, and, and, you know, when mixed also with evangelical Christianity, which quickly <laughs> caught fire, you know, with independence and these, you know, these huge revivals and these huge gatherings after massacring Indian villages in Kentucky, especially, then they would come together in these frenzy, you know, dancing, right. and, uh, handling snakes and 
and, and kind of purging, you know, this violence. Um, this is cultish, yeah. you know, so it's not it's not like the NRA and the gun cultists today are working out of a tradition. Yeah, you know, they really are. They're working with the very roots of the United States, and the you know the the immigrants who've who come, you know, starting with the Irish refugees in the 1840s, have you know do not have those roots. Ah. They have to they have to find a way to be Americanized. So they often have to pick up the anti-black racism, pick up the Indian hating, pick up the hating Mexicans in order to be Americanized. You know, this is the tragedy of it. Woodrow Wilson, I always bring everything back to the First World War, it seems. (laughs) Scott's Irish. Oh, yes. He was, you know, he had to be, you know, a hundred percent American and hyphenated Americans, and I—it's becoming clear that what he meant by a hundred percent Americans was this kind of cult that you know there's a, a belief that a covenant between God and white men that the American continent rightfully belongs to white Christian men, and it's just—it's—it's it's fascinating. It's a matter of faith. You know, so working legislatively misses the point, as, as you say, that, that this land belongs to them. This is a white man's country. They, this is their covenant with God. Perhaps it's, it's less about the founder's true intent of the Second Amendment and more about the absolute belief that God's intent is white male dominance. And that cover so much ground. Could the Second Amendment be a cover, a means for demanding white Christian male dominance? Maybe that's really it. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think that that's true and that the gun is um, is a symbol as much as it, it's a, a weapon. Uh, if you look at the statistics of um, only um, uh, 100,000 um, U.S. adults own uh, own weapons, so that's you know a third, only wow. a third of the adult population own even one gun in the United States, and so that means the average is eight per person. Yeah, eight guns per person, and that means that some people just have one gun. Many people say ten million have one gun, and that means that many have thirty, forty. 50. You don't need that many guns for self-defense. All you need is a Plano shotgun with a birdshot for self-defense. Everything else is for assault. Uh, And, and so this, this is, you know, the, that it it not only is, is cultish, it's addiction. You know, Mm. it's, People get addicted to guns. They buy one, then they buy another one, and then they buy another one. And, you know, then they're in, in the realm of other gun owners. And the NRA is, of course, a petri dish for that. Hmm. You know, I get a lot of pushback, even from gun safety um, uh, <clears throat> advocates, when I talk about the NRA, because they, you know, they hate it because, it, it you know, in their view, it's all about money. Um, and I tell them it's not. It's a grassroots organization, you know, that the national only feeds legislative information 
who to vote for, who not, and then they get, they're the ones that organize and get that person voted or not, depending on their gun stand. So it's, it, it, they, they say there are good people in the NRA, um, and there are 5 million members. Of course, they're not all white nationalists. Some of them just want the coupons for discounts. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of them want, you know, the, just, they're, they're, like the old NRA. I think there are fewer and fewer of them, but there are many. But my thing is they should get out. They're in a white nationalist organization. They should recognize it and get out, you know, get out of that organization. If that's what they're really about is just, you know, sporting and gun ownership and self-defense. And it's really, you know, again, a covenant with God that this country is ours. God gave this land to white men, white Christian men at that. Uh, and even those who, you know, it excludes those who don't buy into the, to the gun culture, to the cult. Huh. What, what, it brings me to the white Southern males' reliance on guns to defend white womanhood. Uh, yeah. and I, I wonder, if does this have anything to do with why the majority of white women voted for Donald Trump more the second time than the first in what ways did this force a choice between victimization and self-protection against the frightening racialized other, the feminists and the, you know, the people for equal rights? Yeah, it was quite a shock to people when when even more, you know, a larger percentage of white women, you know, the term used, the euphemism is suburban, suburban women. <laughs> All the people who've, you know, fled cities because there are too many people of color uh, around uh-huh. uh, something deeper too that the, the the women in settler colonialism actually are empowered um like every other place in the world you know the uh, women didn't have the right to vote they didn't have the right to um if they were married to um own property they certainly sure. could if they didn't get married, or if they were widows, um, uh, they could own property like Martha Washington, you know, um, own everything, you know, the slaves, property, everything. But they, um, they're complicit with settler colonialism, comfortable with it. They are elevated, and they're elevated in that way in, in the southern plantation uh, culture that formed. Um, they they have enormous power uh having all all of these people who are uh, less than they are yeah right you know um like women in europe didn't they that was it well they had poor people that were less than rich they had the class thing but they didn't have the enslaved and so this gave the illusion of women being uh free you know, they were free. They were free because they were white. And they also owned plantations, ran plantations. Um, and so there was, so it's, it's it, in some ways they were empowered, but on the other hand, there's this culture of their, uh, and I think it, I, I'm not sure if it actually existed before Birth of a Nation, which of course yeah. Woodrow Wilson um uh, yeah. Best friend, uh, the racist, made the film. Tom Thomas Dixon wrote it, 
Woodrow Wilson, um, it was premiered in the White House. Yes. Um, and in this, you have the whole crux of it is, you know, the white woman being raped by yeah. a black man. And this is how the Ku Klux Klan uh, first formed was to protect white womanhood. So I think that um, actually it was a myth created uh, by Birth of a Nation huh. that we're very familiar with. But I'm not sure from my studies of, um, you know, plantation culture that it existed before that. But it certainly did involve guns. You know, you saw in Birth of a Nation, oh, there sure. are there, of course, it's it's after after war after the Civil War, and supposedly the um, Confederates had been disarmed. But it shows them arming themselves secretly Gosh. into the Ku Klux Klan to protect white womanhood. So I think that was a a mythical, a very intentional mythical invention to um, to really, you know, with the the sort of. Jim Crow was already, you know, the NAACP, the national, um, uh, you know, the the black organization had been formed um, in 1901. And, of course, Birth of a Nation was uh, 1915. Uh, so there was this fear that Jim Crow was fear, breaking down. Yes. And, and black people were leaving in droves, you know, going north and going oh, sure. west, leaving the south. So I think I think that was a, a myth that was intentionally created mm. from the higher up by the president of the United States to um, uh, to create a new reason why uh, uh, white men should be armed uh -huh. and and should uh, persecute black people. Wow, that that does put a spin on things, and uh, there's so much to learn from history, but we rarely if ever, learn from history. Bert Cohen here. The show is, <clears throat> excuse me, Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. We're talking about how deeply guns are woven into the American national identity. White settlers, white control, and, uh, you know, civilization going forward against the heathens. And with the breakdown of Jim Crow laws and the rise of civil rights, anti-racism, as you say, the NRA handed the descendants of the white settler population its t this tool for their empowerment. Uh, so the, what was the effect of the civil rights movement on the white gun advocates? I can imagine it was a, quite the uh, organizing tool. You know, that's exactly when um, Harlan Carter been, began doing his work um, uh, and joined the NRA and began trying to change it. Um, it was, you know, the 1954 um, Supreme Court uh, desegregation decision was um, was a bombshell for white, you know, for for white men um, who, up until that time, had um, uh, controlled everything. You know, everyone in government, everyone in corporations, everyone in um, education at every level of the society run by white men right and integration of schools you know meant oh, yeah. children children would associate with each other and when Cars. they do they come, 
they come to respect and admire and love each other, right? And yes. they don't rather than hating each other. And this couldn't happen, you know. So very quickly, white citizens councils yes. organized all over the country. And uh, I know, and you know, I remember it in Oklahoma oh, yes. when um, they began to form, and um, uh, and and then the John Birch Society. Uh, in 1957 was founded as the absolutely clearly a white nationalist organization. And by very wealthy people, uh, Fred Koch, the father of the Koch brothers, was a founder. Uh Uh, They were all big corporate founders, white men. So it ties in together. And and, sorry to interrupt, in my experience, when people believe something, in a non-rational religious manner, such as the so-called right to life movement and white nationalism, their faith is unshakable by rational methods. It's like trying to cause a religious conversion through legislation. It's just not possible. Is it possible to understand this history and, and help cause a reevaluation? Is there any approach approach to getting guns under control, which holds promise of change, or is it a totally lost cause? What are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, it's it's going to get worse, it seems to me, than better in, in terms of laws being made, such as uh, proposed in Arizona and Texas and probably some other places. I mean, one if one of them passes and it gets through this horrible Supreme Court that exists, yeah. Uh, it will it will spread, and that is that the gun laws in one you know a a citizen of Texas say uh, when he move, moves or visits California brings with him his right the gun rights oh, that right. he had in Texas, and and that takes away the you know any kind of autonomy or enforcement in a state like California that has you know some gun laws at least um they're not totally rejected you know when they are raped um so what can we do about the people who just you know have this uh, they worship their guns you know is there any approach that can start to shake that faith or or well i I think that you know, first of all, discrediting the NRA for the right reasons, not and take the money out of it. The thirty million dollars that they that that's a drop in the bucket to what Exxon puts into you know yeah. bribing congressmen. I mean, it's just like you know peanuts. Um, these legislators, ha- it has nothing to do with the money. It has to do with the votes at home yes. that are going to go against them if they uh, vote for any kind of uh, gun uh, regulation, they won't be able to stay in office. And it has nothing to do with money. If you take that out and then right. show what the RA actually is, then, you know, people can wake up and maybe we can have some kind of mass movement that isn't just about legislation, but about changing people's minds, you know, <laughs> their consciousness and it can be taught in schools. So, you know, kids, it becomes repugnant 
even to have a, you know, an AR-15. What do you need that for? You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. So, it's so be... I think that that's yeah. it. And then the other thing is to do away with J-R-O-T-C, Junior yes. R-O-T-C, because in collaboration with the NRA, they're in middle schools and high schools throughout the country training, uh, you know, and they bring their ideology with them. So cultural so change I, is, is slow, but if our legislators see that there's, aha, more votes on one side than the other, if there's this movement, you know, for uh, yeah. Black Lives Matter, for example, you know, once right. once that starts to happen, it's it's slow, it's difficult, but we got to be persistent, and that seems to be perhaps the only way it, it really can be done. Thank you so much for being with us. This is uh, amazing history. People need to, as we say, think with history. Uh, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, her book is called Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Oh, thanks, Bert. And be sure and tell people about Sierra's uh, The Rifleman, the film. Oh, yes, The Rifleman. Yeah, that's that's good to look at as well. And you can just Google it. All right, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Bert. Bye. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave this golden land to me and when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains i see a land where children can run free so take land with me and walk this lovely land with me though I am just a man when you are by my side with the help of God I know I can be strong
is mine.